What is up, you guys? Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. As many of you know, uh, my Instagram got shut down this week. Hopefully, we'll get it back soon. But if you're looking for Carnivore MD on Instagram, you're not seeing me there. It's not because I blocked you. It's because the Instagram overlords decided that uh, they didn't want me to mention things about COVID or whatever. So that's frustrating. But we're taking it all in stride, and hopefully, it'll be back soon. Uh, I still am loving Whole Package. I am loving this supplement that we've got from Heart and Soil Supplements. This is the company that I built in Austin, Texas that helps all of you get more nose to tail nutrition. And I'm so proud of what we are doing. Um, it is just an incredible group of people here. Really, we are sourcing the best grass-fed, grass-finished organs on the planet, putting them into capsules for you to help you get all of the unique nutrition from these uh, that's difficult to get from organs. And I'm a huge fan of eating nose to tail. I'm a huge fan of eating animal foods. All of you know that I believe these are really the center of human health. These are the most sought out foods our ancestors and currently living hunter gatherers have ever um, been in search of, and they lead to abundant health for us. So we want to help you reclaim your birthright to radical health at Heart and Soil. You can find us at heartandsoil.co. And I am completely convinced getting more organs in your life will be a huge benefit to you. I want to read you a review from Catherine G about our histamine and immune product. She says, I started developing seasonal allergies in my 20s after going through cancer treatments. I always needed Zyrtec and Benadryl, which was expensive and not a healthy option long-term. Started using uh, histamine and immune. I don't need any allergy meds anymore, even with the seasons changing and have my windows open 24-7. I can even stay indoors in rooms where there are fresh cut lilies. I used to get debilitating headaches if I got anywhere near them. I'm not even worked up to the full dose yet, so I'm really pleased. How cool is that, you guys? Like histamine and immune, amazing. Here's another review about histamine and immune. Um, this one is crushing it right now. This is from Eric. He says, I absolutely swear by histamine and immune. Last year, I developed the worst allergies I've ever experienced. Pets I've been around for years were all of a sudden giving me hour-long allergy attacks, hiking trails I've been doing for ages, would have me sneezing and itching for hours afterward. It sucked. After finding Paul through some online research, I switched to an all-animal-based diet. And along with that, I ordered histamine and immune from heart and soil. Within what seemed to be weeks, my body stopped having adverse reactions to animals in nature, just like that. I love this stuff and beyond grateful for the work that Paul and heart and soil do. So that's from Eric. So check us out, heartandsoil.co and reclaim your birthright to radical health, you guys. Now, my guest on this week's podcast is Stefan Van Vliet. Um, as you'll hear in the beginning of the podcast, I just butchered his name all the time, but I think I'm getting it reasonably right. He uh, earned his PhD in kinesiology and community health as an ESPEN fellow from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, received postdoctoral training at the Center for Human Nutrition in the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Dr. Van Vliet also holds a master's in nutrition science. He is currently a member of the Duke Molecular Physiology Institute within the Duke School of Medicine, focuses his work on the effects of primary compounds, protein, carbohydrates, fat, and vitamins, and secondary compounds, phytochemicals, polyphenols, quote-unquote antioxidants, and the molecular mechanisms by which they impact human metabolism. His work also involves physical activity interventions and utilizes an integrative approach to improve human health. I first became aware of Stefan's work um, when I read some of his papers in conjunction with Fred Provenza and the fact that he's doing work looking at the effects of meat in a human diet that is a whole foods diet rather than a standard American garbage processed diet. This is one of my favorite conversations ever. I think it will really be eye-opening for you in the conversation. I talk about the way that my views on this have changed a little bit and you will hear how 
what a cow eats is really important in terms of you getting the right nutrition out of that meat and how you can marinate meat from the inside out, beating a grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised cow. So I love this stuff and organs. And yet another reason to get organs in your diet, like we make it hard in soil. So I love this stuff. This was a fascinating conversation. I know you guys are going to really like it. If you appreciate this podcast, please leave me a review wherever you listen. If you happen to listen on Apple Podcasts, I especially appreciate that one. Um, and I will give away a signed copy of my book every month to someone who leaves me a review there. It helps us reach more people. And ultimately, that is what makes me feel like we are succeeding in this movement. One person at a time, but lives are changing. In fact, I was in the grocery store today in Whole Foods in Austin, and somebody came up to me and said, man, your work changed my life. He was from the VA. He was in the military. He was worried about his LDL being high. And it just made me feel so good. I mean, I nearly started crying. I just wanted to thank him for telling me that because this is hard work to do. You know, Instagram shuts down my shit. People criticize you all the time. It's awesome to see that people are really, really benefiting from what we're doing. And I hope this conversation will also help people understand where we're coming from. So uh, thank you for all your support. And please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Please check out the sponsors of this episode and support them. That is in fact the best way to ensure that the podcast continues to roll. And these are all really good people. I would not have them as podcast sponsors otherwise. And speaking about the importance of grass-fed, grass-finished meats and the way that affects the quality of the meat, you guys know that I love heart, uh, excuse me, white oak pastures in Georgia. These are the sixth generation farm. They've been regenerative for over 20 years, whiteoakpastures.com. They just sent me a whole bunch of pasture-raised chicken that is corn and soy free. It's amazing. You guys should check this out. They did these chickens for us because I asked for corn and soy free chickens. They also have grass-fed, grass-finished beef. They have organs, uh, heart, whatever, all kinds of good organs. It's pretty hard to get testicles from them. In fact, it's really hard to get testicles in general, which is why whole package from Heart and Soil is so cool. But sometimes you can get testicles from White Oak as well. But they will give you 10% off your first order of some of the best meat, if not the best meat you've ever eaten in your life by using the code CarnivoreMD at checkout. And like we talk about in this podcast with Stefan, this meat is grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised. It's going to be full of so many compounds that may be beneficial. You're essentially meriting the meat from the inside out. And we know that it improves ecosystem health, the soil microbiome, which is also called the mycorrhizal networks. And this is so much better for everything all around. So check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. CarnivoreMD is the code. I also love Belcampo in Northern California. Uh, Anya Fernald has been on the podcast. She's such a good human and they're doing really great work there. They're grass-fed, grass-finished, organic, regeneratively raised. I in fact ate one of their regenerative ribeyes from Uruguay tonight for dinner and it was freaking amazing. The good company might've had something to do with it, but the steak was spectacular. And every time I eat these steaks from Belcampo, uh, I am reminded at how good their meat really is. They also have organs and suet as well. Check them out, bellcampo.com. You can also use the code CarnivoreMD there. That'll get you 20% off your order. Again, regenerative agriculture is the way forward. And this podcast will certainly reinforce that perspective for all of you. I also want to give a shout out to Blueblocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Last week or two weeks ago, I think it was last week, you guys heard Andy Mant on the podcast. He's the chief guy behind Blueblocks and he really knows his stuff. Really taking care of your circadian rhythms and being cautious to avoid blue light, excess blue light at night will help your body produce melatonin in the right time. And your suprachiasmatic nucleus will be much happier with you. So make your suprachiasmatic nucleus proud and protect your eyes at night from harmful effects of blue light, the circadian rhythm blocking effects of blue light. Check them out, blueblox, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. You can use carnivore MD for 15 
20% off your order there. Uh, I love what he's doing. And I think that these glasses he makes are definitely the best quality I've ever seen. The lenses, the hinges, they're really, really good. There's a lot of kind of cheaper glasses on the market, but these are really quality. They also have red light bulbs, a red light device, a sleeping mask, all kinds of good stuff. And last but not least, you guys know about Let's Get Checked. I think we should be democratizing lab work for you, for humans. You should be able to get your lab work when you want. And this is a cool company that allows you to do that. Their website is trylgc.com. And you can go to trylgc.com front slash Paul to get, I believe, how much is it? 20% off your order, trylgc.com front slash Paul. And I talk a lot about testosterone. You guys know that healthy sperm counts are declining and hormonal imbalances are pervasive. Symptoms are the worst things ever. Low energy fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, hard time making decisions. It's horrible. It's the worst thing. But to check your hormones, you've got to be able to do this. And it's difficult to go to the doctor sometimes. Let's get checked. We'll do a full male hormone panel for you. So easy. And like I said, they will give you a discount with my code. You can choose your test online, deliver to you in discreet packaging, next day delivery, activate your sample, send it into them. You get your results in two to five days with the male hormone test kit. You'll get testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin, prolactin, estrogen, free energy index. Once your results are available, they're reviewed by a physician. A nurse contacts you for a consultation over the phone. It's all included in the cost of the lab. And you don't even have to go to a doctor's office or a laboratory. You can do it all from your home. I've done it. It's super easy. I got my HSCRP checked or CRP, excuse me. They do CRP. I had lipids checked. I had um, uh, the fatty acids. So I had essential fatty acids and I had my male hormones checked. Happy to report the testosterone is robust. Probably some combination of my sun uh, exposure to my entire body, my good quality animal-based diet, testicles in my diet from whole package and all kinds of other good stuff. So all the laboratories are CLIA approved. All data is anonymized. And you can go to trylgc.com front slash Paul. And Paul is obviously P-A-U-L. Trylgc is T-R-Y-L-G-C.com to get 20% off your order. And I think you will appreciate what they were doing at Let's Get Checked. All right, guys, that is all for today's intro. Thanks for listening to this. Thanks for supporting the podcast sponsors. I always hope that the Sponsor messages don't get in the way of your listening experience, but this is how we support the podcast. And all of these are companies that I believe will enhance your life. This podcast will enhance your life. Enjoy it. Stay right. Thanks for coming on the podcast, my friend. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Paul. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here and, uh, and thank you for having me. Yeah. So how do I say your last name? Is it Van Vliet? It's, it's Van Vliet. Yes. Okay. That, that's and right. Is it Stefan? Is it Stefan or Steven? Stefan? Stefan. Yes. Okay. And is it French? What is your what is your ethnicity? No, I'm originally born and raised in uh, in the Netherlands, in uh, okay. in, in in Rotterdam, uh, a uh, big city that uh, used to, in the '90s, boasted the, the biggest harbor in the world. But uh, so I, I grew up uh, near uh, near the North Sea. Okay, interesting. I've never been to the Netherlands, but I want to get to that area of the world soon. I, I'm fascinated by kind of like the northern European countries, but. Uh, it's, it's great to have you because I really appreciate the research you're doing and the way that you're looking at this stuff. And I think that, that my audience is really gonna appreciate some of these conversations today. We're gonna address a lot of topics that I've kind of touched upon in the past, but it's always good to hear about them again. And I'm sure your perspective will be unique and we'll probably dive a little deeper than I have in the past. But I thought we would start with some discussion of 
Um, there's a CNN report that I saw recently which just really epitomizes what frustrates probably both of us about mainstream health reporting these days. And the CNN report was that eating one hot dog shortens your life by 30, 30. So, of course, I don't even understand why plant-based advocates or vegan doctors on Instagram fall for this type of stuff, but they were reposting and it's saying, haha, look, you know, meat is not good for you, it shortens your life. Of course, I'm sure that most of my audience was savvy enough to realize this is observational epidemiology. But, you know, I was reading one of your papers, and we're going to go through a bunch of the papers that you've written uh, in this podcast, and you wrote a great paper that I thought had so many interesting points that we'll touch on, and the title of that one is Plant-Based Meats, Human Health, and Climate Change. And at the beginning of this paper, you make this really interesting point that there are studies that have been done, both epidemiological and, um, I should say, observational and interventional, in which red meat has been included as part of a quote-unquote healthy diet versus a standard American diet. And I thought maybe we could go through some of those and talk about what you think about this, this CNN report on this observational study that hot dogs shorten your life for 36 minutes. And maybe we can break down some of these, these studies in paper. I've got them pulled up if you want to look at them and, and talk about the contrast what we know at this moment, and then maybe we'll get into the research you're doing, and contrast the way that red meat appears to behave, or at least uh, the, the, the pretty significant evidence that red meat healthy diet doesn't look like we're often told it does. Yeah, no, you're, you're right, Paul. The, the short enough of it is that uh, indeed the background diet in which individual foods are consumed, whether it be red meat or any other food, is obviously going to have a major impact if uh, whether that's uh, individual food would associate with uh, with health and disease and i i would argue that uh, the overall diet is going to be a going to have a far more dramatic effect on that um but yeah in in, in this study and i i wrote this with uh so i really wrote the the, the human nutrition part and uh it's it's together with uh, uh scott kronberg and fred provenza which are uh agricultural scientists so we were uh, we were merging both uh, yeah the nutrition as well as the environmental piece which uh, seem sometimes synonymous now uh, uh, these days when when you talk about uh, uh, red meat and, and human health uh, so that's really what we uh, did in that paper and indeed what uh, yeah as you alluded to the the, the CNN headline was, was probably the study taken a little bit too far just because you can make an estimate of uh, of how long it would take. It's, it's obviously a lot of uncertainty. No one in nutrition science has that type of precision to say that uh, eating a hot dog shortens your life by 36 minutes and eating an almond or a handful of almonds increases it by 24 minutes uh, or, or something like that, which uh, I saw the, on social media and a lot of people were obviously saying, what if I uh, eat, uh, eat some salmon with, uh, with almonds and, uh, and a hot dog and uh, then it will cancel everything out and I'll still be two minutes up. But yeah, obviously it's uh, it's not that uh, it's not that simple. And of course, I think the observational studies have a place. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it was uh, interesting to see that uh, uh, there was uh, actual minutes given to uh, individual foods. So why why are studies like this, from your perspective, misleading? Um, what, what's going on here? How can they how can they do a study like this and find? And even even make a, a claim like eating a eating a hot dog is associated with 36 minutes shorter life. Like, why is this so misleading to the consumer? Well, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, 
I would say it's misleading per se. I mean, obviously, I think that the scientists uh, uh, meant well, and and uh, uh, of course, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think we also have to be be careful, and as a scientist, we also have uh, a role in that. It's uh, and certainly, I also have to be introspective too. It's important that we do not overplay uh, our, our data and, uh, and and be sure that we are uh, sure to, to point out some of these caveats. And uh, I do know it's sometimes hard as a researcher because I've definitely also published work and then uh, uh, the media runs with it and takes one piece out of it, right? Depending on what, uh, what, what you want to take out of it. Um, but yeah, for the consumer, it's obviously very confusing because a lot of these nuances Again, is that, uh, for instance, as we can go into, is that uh, usually the headlines that, for instance, say red meat is associated with uh, uh, cancer, heart disease, etc. Quite often, it misses the nuance of the population that this was studied or or the overall lifestyle. The other day, I uh, I commented on this on, on social media on Twitter too. There was a study that found I think a 20% increase in in cardiovascular disease with red meat. But the relationship was completely dissolved when uh, accounting for BMI. And uh, the authors did a good job in stating that, but the news headline did not do a good job in stating that because what it essentially found was is that uh, people with a higher BMI were at risk of developing metabolic disease, and the people that ate red meat with a low BMI and as part of a healthy lifestyle had no increased risk of uh, developing metabolic disease, such as, uh, in this case, cardiovascular disease. And those are the nuances that are often missed in uh, news reporting and why it's so confusing for the consumer to one day uh, read a news report uh, saying red meat is bad for our health and the other day might read a news report saying, well, red meat is okay for our health. And especially the egg, eggs are also plagued by this, right? Where uh, one week the consumer might uh, read eggs are bad for you, the next week they're okay. and what it usually boils down to quite often is I ate the dose, the dose, of course, but I'd say more importantly, the overall dietary background in which it's consumed. If you consume your eggs as, a, as an egg muffin with a bunch of other ultra-processed foods, or you consume your eggs as part of a more wholesome diet, that will mod, uh, modify the associations that eggs or, or otherwise red meat too have with, uh, with, with uh, disease outcome. And this is the problem with observational studies, and hopefully everyone listening to this understands that these are not studies where there's an actual control group and an experiment, uh, usually, uh, but it's a group of people who tend to associate behaviors. And they're saying, how much meat or how many eggs do you eat? And as you point out, sometimes there are people who are more obese who end up eating more meat because of this unhealthy user bias that we've been subject to for the last 70 plus years because the mainstream narrative has been that meat is unhealthy for us. And so the phrase that I've been mentioning to people or the question I've been asking people is, you know, outside of your uh, community of people who are outliers and are health conscious, in the general United States population or the general westernized population, how often do you see someone go to McDonald's and eat meat? Never. They always eat a hamburger with a bun and special sauce, which has seed oils, and french fries, which are cooked in soybean oil, along with a milkshake with a bunch of processed sugar. And probably a soft serve ice cream at the end with uh, uh, you know, a cone. And so it's, 
this is why I think it's so misleading that these studies even get published or talked about in the media. And I really appreciated what you said in the paper, which was that there are many studies which have been done. Maybe we can go through some of these. There are many studies which have been done that looked at the, the consumption of red meat in the context of a quote unquote high quality omnivorous diet, and they did not find the same results. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been some studies. I, I would say just by nature, uh, most of the studies have been done in people on uh, standard American diets, arguably because that's what most of us are consuming, right? Uh, about 60 uh, or about two thirds of our, of our diet is made up of ultra processed foods in the standard American diet. So by default, you're gonna probably end up with uh, uh, a lot of uh, studies that are done on that population, right? But there have been certainly been studies like uh, uh, the uh, Alberta's Tomorrow Project is one that uh, that comes to mind that uh, where where people had uh, I want to say it was over a pound or a pound and a half of meat a week, but also when co-consumed with uh, uh, a lot of fruits and vegetables, the association uh, with cancer went from a positive association to a at least non significant. Uh, uh, relative risk of I think it was about 0.78 or 0.8 or something like that but in, in any case the point being is that when co-consumed as part of uh, uh, a high quality diet in this case rich in fruits and vegetables the uh, the, the association was flip-flop that went from a protective one to a neutral one and uh, potentially protective one and other studies have found this too like the Oxford Epic study the, the healthy shopper study the, the 45 and up study um, Essentially, what many of these studies found is that when red meat is consumed as part of a healthy diet, that a lot of these <clears throat> associations with in, uh, increased risk of metabolic disease may disappear. So there's certainly been some research done in this area. I agree we need more studies on this. Uh, also, it will be important to do some more prospective studies, uh, randomized controlled trials to, uh, to either uh, uh, yeah, to study these, these potential uh, associations uh, prospectively but also a few studies that uh, that popped to mind is uh, the consumption of beef as part of a dash diet which is also considered a, a healthy diet uh, rich in fruits and vegetables uh, whole grains I mean low in ultra processed foods essentially uh, dash diet also Mediterranean diet and their inclusion of beef at least does not seem to be uh, uh, reducing the health biomarkers in this case looking at uh, triglycerides and, and uh, you know cholesterol levels and we can argue whether that's always the best best metric but also inflammatory profiles such as interleukin-6 and c-reactive protein which is not uh, increased when meat is co-consumed as part of uh, fruits and vegetables and 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 we what we go into the mechanism why and it's a little bit of speculation because we need to do more work on it in humans but it does seem that there's at least some mechanistic insight that uh, uh, when red meat is consumed as part of, uh, of of ultra processed foods that maybe some of the potential carcinogens in meat could become an issue, whereas uh, if you add uh, herbs and spices and marinades to meat, that some of these uh, the, the formation of these uh, these compounds are uh, are pretty much uh, uh, yeah cancelled out, and that could be a potential mechanistic uh, explanation to that. 
I think there's a lot of potential hypotheses there which we can address. Before we do that, I, I, I just want to show people some of the studies that you were mentioning. Um, I've, I've talked about these in the past, but um, we have, this is the UK shopper study, the mortality in British vegetarians, a review and preliminary results from the Epic Oxford cohort. And as you can see here, the mortality of both vegetarians and non-vegetarians in these studies is low compared with the national rates. Within studies, the mortality uh, for major causes of death was not significantly different between vegetarians and non-vegetarians. Uh, and that's essentially uh, because they were looking at a population of people who were non-vegetarians, these are omnivores, who had quote-unquote healthy behaviors. This is a study I've talked about in the past. Um, I think you might have mentioned this one. This is the meat consumption and, and diet quality and mortality in NHANES 3. And you can see the conclusions here. Meat consumption was not associated with mortality. Uh, a healthy diet, according to HEI, however, was associated with a decreased total mortality in men but not women. And this is, um, this is people, This again, these are observational trials, but uh, these are people eating uh, meat in the context of a, quote, healthy uh, diet, according to um, HEI, which is the Healthy Eating Index, some sort of a, uh, a metric that uh, accounts for the presence of processed food and, uh, and the presence of things like, quote, unquote, fruits and vegetables, which are often associated with a healthy diet. Um, this is a really big one that I've talked about in the past. Meat intake and cause-specific mortality, pooled analysis of Asian prospective cohort studies. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people in Asia, where I would argue the narrative is completely different than it is in the West. Uh, and they found that um, the, most, uh, the most red meat consumption was associated with the lowest incidence of cardiovascular mortality in men and the lowest incidence of cancer mortality in women. Um, this I, one is I particularly think, interesting. I do think, Paul, with yeah. that study on the Asians, I do think it's important to point out that you might know these numbers off the top of my head because I haven't uh, looked at the study specifically, but I do believe in the highest category of consumers, Asian consumers, I do believe it still is fairly moderate in terms of uh, Western consumption patterns. Uh, uh, so I think, that, yeah, I, you know, when you look at actually their highest intake is not our highest intake, right? It's that uh, their their intake is a little lower. So that, that is important to note, but it, it is indeed, as you, as you point out uh, here, it could indeed be associated with more affluence, uh, better socioeconomic status and, and things like that. Uh, so, but, but yeah, absolutely. It's uh, uh, this study at least shows that it, it, this would be cons cons uh, constituted moderate intake uh, probably in, uh, in the American diet, if uh, I'm uh, not mistaken. Okay. This is the DASH study that you mentioned, the effects of a DASH-like diet containing lean beef on vascular health. Very interesting to note that there were no significant effects of the dietary treatments on diastolic blood pressure or endothelial function. As measured by peripheral arterial tonometry, uh, moderate protein DASH-like diet, including lean beef, decreased systolic blood pressure in normal tense of individuals. Um, they say the inclusion of lean beef in a heart-healthy diet also reduced peripheral, peripheral vascular constriction. So this is to get kind of fascinating. And um, it's, these are not the type of study that I would design if I had my druthers, but a lot of information. And the last one that I'll show here um, is the Mediterranean one you mentioned, the Mediterranean style eating process red meat has cardiometabolic benefits for adults who are overweight or obese. And this one is a randomized crossover feeding trial. The other ones were uh, many of them were observational trials, 
But as you can see here, adults who are overweight or moderately obese may improve multiple cardiometabolic risk factors by adopting a quote-unquote Mediterranean-style um, with or without risk reductions in red meat intake are lean and unprocessed. Uh, in this trial, I, I should note that the, uh, the non-reduced red meat consumption group grams of red meat per week, and the reduced red meat consumption group had 200 grams of red meat per week. Now, I'll just, I'll be perfectly honest and point out that I eat 500 grams of red meat in one sitting, and one meat, one, one week, and we can talk about what that means. So there's a lot to go one level deeper here, if it's okay with you. Um, I, I will refer people back to the podcast I did with Tucker Goodrich, and the Diet Leon Heart Study, in which they sort of created a framework for what we consider to be a Mediterranean diet pattern. And generally, a Mediterranean diet pattern... There's no real consensus on this, but it's thought of as a dietary pattern that has higher levels of things like alpha-linolenic acid and lower levels of linoleic acid. So the context here in, in that study is at least, hey, we're going to reduce linoleic acid and give these people moderate amounts of red meat, and hey, that doesn't hurt them, no surprise there. But the question that I have for you, Stefan, is, there's two questions here. Let's address the first one, uh, which is it is about ultra-processed foods that make them so harmful for humans. Because I think that we can uh, agree that, that the absence of ultra-processed foods is a huge variable in these diets. And there is a pretty clear signal here that when you remove ultra-processed foods, the inclusion of, at least from these studies, moderate amounts of red meat, maybe not Paul's amounts of red meat, but moderate amounts of red meat appear to even be beneficial for humans. So what do you think it is about ultra-processed foods that we're dealing with here? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. The simplest answer is what Kevin Hall studies, uh, Kevin Hall studies shown is that people tend to overeat on ultra-processed foods too, so you end up with 500 extra calories and uh, there's certainly some mechanistic insight in why it is, but you probably don't have your normal satiety responses. You end up with uh, usually getting uh, a lot of energy uh, in, in actually a, a small volume of food already. Uh, you are not potentially getting some of the nutrients, and you especially see this in animal models, is that uh, let's say if we eat a strawberry, or, uh, or in this case me, but let's take the strawberry as the example. Let's say if we eat a strawberry and we get, uh, we have a sweetness and you know, we like eating that, but we also get the nutrients with it, right? So it's nourishing and it's, it's satiating, but if you uh, have a strawberry kosher, then you don't get the nutrients with it. So in animal models, you definitely see that if uh, you have a, a calorie rich diet, but which are at the same time nutrient poor, is that animals tend to overeat to try to obtain these nutrients. Perhaps there's no reason, there, this could happen in humans too, obviously. I mean, clearly you see the overeating, and we do this in a randomized controlled trial now too, where we're looking at red meat as part of a ultra-processed diet and a, a more of a helpful traditional American diet. It's very hard to keep people uh, to not overeat, uh, or, or at least with the whole foods diet, matching that in calories in the ultra-processed diet. A lot of people just, I started to understand why people probably stay lean on uh, on a whole foods diet because it's just uh, very hard to overeat on that too, and that's something we've noticed uh, too. So the overeating part is one thing. Uh, the digestion absorption kinetics are altered, so you may get uh, uh, these nutrients that, that come into circulation much quicker. So the satiety responses are off. Uh, 
could it be the types of fatty acids potentially but it could also just be uh these come with a uh in an ultra processed package right so that i don't know if we can truly uh, decouple that uh, things like sugar and uh types of fatty acids can we truly uncouple that from uh from the food sources in which they come in that that's uh, i think a tricky uh, part and uh, we can go into that uh, or not but the, the short end of it is that, yeah, ultra-processed foods, they are typically also lower in uh, what we think of like secondary compounds due to the processing. So a lot of uh, secondary metabolites are, are processed out, uh, such as uh, uh, yeah, certain phytochemical compounds, which are being processed out or occur in lower amounts. So these could all be reasons why, uh, why ultra-processed foods uh, are, are particularly harmful uh, for our health and why consuming uh, the same types of foods is more wholesome as part of a wholesome diet could uh, yeah, potentially offset uh, some of that. So I did a, I referred back to this podcast a moment ago, but I did a podcast recently with Tucker Goodrich and we talked about this. Uh, there's a pretty clear mechanism for overconsumption of ultra-processed foods connecting linoleic acid with um, endogenous anandamides or the overproduction of endogenous anandamides uh, these, in this case, I think would be, you know, exogenous, uh, essentially, because it's coming from linoleic acid, but things like 2-AG and anandamide. And that's been, that's been worked out pretty well. I think that's a pretty fascinating thing. And it connects also with the drug Ramonabant, which is a cannabinoid 1 receptor antagonist that's pretty clearly shown to um, abrogate uh, appetite um, by blocking the CB1 receptor and, you know, potentially by blocking these, these uh, cannabinoids from the overconsumption of, I would say, evolutionarily inconsistent levels of linoleic acid. So that's, that's quite interesting to me. But you bring up this other point, which I, which I really appreciate about your research. And I, I think this gets to a, a really key concept that I wanted to make sure we flesh out in this podcast, which is the concept of a food matrix and the whole food matrix. And this is perpetually frustrating for me that in nutrition science, people often conflate reductionist experiments uh, with foods or food components that are not done in a whole food matrix with foods that occur in a whole food matrix. And there's plenty of examples of this, but you know, you mentioned strawberries versus just pure fructose or sucrose and table sugar or high fructose corn syrup would be an analogy here. Um, and so this is super frustrating for me that, that in the literature, there's a decent body of literature saying that, hey, if you, if you overfeed humans or, or rats, pure fructose, um, that, that looks to have negative metabolic effects on humans. But that never occurs unless we're eating processed food, unless we're eating diet, you know, not diet, but like Coke, Coca-Cola with high fructose corn syrup, right? And so, but my concern is that people in certain nutritional communities will conflate that and say, oh, fruit is not good for humans or honey you know, is not good for humans, when in fact we have research to suggest the opposite. So do you have the same sort of frustration? Does that make sense, what I'm, what I'm expressing? Yeah, here? no, I, I agree with, uh, with, with you, Paul. We have to be careful that uh, indeed, in, you know, nutritional reductionism has a place to, to sort of try to understand uh, uh, certain mechanisms. But yeah, when we start to think that, oh, overfeeding of fructose induces uh, uh, fatty liver disease and then start to extrapolate that to say like oh we shouldn't eat an apple or uh, or have a tablespoon of honey then yeah we're, we're i think we're uh, missing the missing the point there so i would definitely agree with that and you do see that when these things are fed in like a whole food matrix 
you do see that uh, a the associative data uh, changes typically, right? Um, a, a can of uh, of uh, a sugar sweetened beverage like uh, like Coke is not uh, the same as getting your uh, your fructose from uh, sweet potato. One thing we're we're doing in the study now is like we try to match the sugar content. Well, <laughs> that's hard to do, but we give people a lot of sweet potato, right? Sweet potato is pretty pretty high in uh, in in. Uh, in, in sugar and uh, in glucose, uh, but obviously, you know, it's going to be different than uh, getting it from uh, other uh, uh, like added sugars and things like that. And I mean, I don't challenge uh, uh, us or, or me that a sweet potato is unhealthy because it contains sugar, or that an apple is unhealthy because it contains sugar, right? So I think those are important nuances to. Well, well maybe some people do, but uh, uh, I, I think we have a pretty strong. Uh, I'm not I'm not always sure about a lot of things in science, but that I feel pretty comfortable in saying that uh, that uh, that can be part of a diet. So I think those yeah I agree with that. Those are such important nuances, and they are sometimes overlooked when we equate single nutrients, which we typically do, like sugar, saturated, uh, even sometimes protein, like you know high intakes of those, that we sort of equate that and and then say that, oh, then food sources that contain these nutrients are uh, not good for us, whereas it's much more nuanced than that. And the, the, the matrix in which you consume individual nutrients is going to have an impact on how your body metabolizes this and, uh, uh, and, and health outcomes. So. Exactly. And this is, this is something that I think is, is perpetually lost in the nutrition sphere because it's very difficult to study things in a whole food matrix and that's why I appreciate your perspective on this and some of the research you're doing. I want to get more into the actual studies you're doing now. But uh, I mean, I had a previous podcast with Stephen Gundry and we had a little debate about fructose and he is handing me, he's always sending me papers about fructose in isolation and I'm always saying back to him, show me a paper that shows that fruit uh, with fructose is, is bad for humans and, and he's been unable to do that. So this is just, you know, you said, I don't think anyone would debate us. And I would say, oh yes, actually people do debate this very frequently that the fructose is fructose is fructose. And in the world of nutritional science or nutritional, you know, Twitter or nutritional uh, medicine in general, I think that everyone or mostly everyone is well-intentioned, but there are a lot of people in the ketogenic community who get very zealous and will say, uh, a spoonful of raw organic honey is equivalent to, uh, you know, four four ounces of Coca-Cola, and I think I don't think that's equivalent evolutionarily. And the the framework that I see that in is this whole food matrix and and all the other things that are in the honey that affect that really are like information. I think people should think about this as like packets of information on the internet or light information, like getting vitamin from the sun versus from a vitamin D supplement is these are completely different things. We know that the sun contains more information coming to your body. And similarly, uh, getting fructose in a strawberry or an apple or a tablespoon of honey is different than getting fructose in high fructose corn syrup. So let's, let's segue to meat because I think that there's a really interesting discussion here about the whole food matrix of meat as well. And, 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 the way that, that might influence how we respond to meat. So the flip side of the equation you mentioned earlier is the second part of this, this point that I want to discuss, which is there is a hypothesis that perhaps the consumption of meat in the setting of a quote-unquote healthy diet is due to protective effects of fruit and vegetables, which assumes that the meat has a negative effect 
on humans. And that's something that I, I'm not convinced of, but I, I want to I talk about that a little more. Um, sure. But let's, let's dig into that a little bit. I mean, when people think about meat and cancer, or what are the potential things in meat that you think the fruit and vegetables might be protecting us against? Yeah, I mean, there, there's maybe, uh, I would say this is somewhat special because we only have uh, a lot of in, in vitro uh, digestion data, right? And uh, so how this would pan out in humans, I'm not 100% uh, uh, sure, but uh, we, it's okay to speculate a little bit sometimes. But at least some of the, some of the in, in uh, vitro data would suggest that, uh, and again, this is a simulated digestion that, uh, uh, yeah, some of like, like heterocyclic amines or other... Uh, 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 compounds uh, such as that that may form with heating of meat, but it will also certainly uh, help them if you heat your Brussels sprouts and uh, glaze them. So it's not uh, per se uh, unique to meat. Uh, but with heating, these compounds are formed. And then if you uh, marinate your meat or use uh, herbs and, and spices or, or citrus, like, like lemon juice, that then the formation of these compounds is reduced by 30 to 60 depending on the study that you look at. So that could potentially be a reason why you offset some of, of these, uh, these, these issues. Um, but again, we don't really have much in the way of data of people uh, such as, you know, people that have a meat heavy diet that uh, uh, do not consume a lot of other, other foods with it. So, so yeah, it, it, say for sure but at least that provides a, a mechanistic ex explanation that we touch on but I would definitely not say that, uh, or, or at least claim that that is uh, proven uh, beyond uh, reasonable doubt it's just a, more of a, a theory I would say at the moment yeah yeah I saw those papers I dug into this a little bit because I think it's a topic that comes up a lot and it kind of centers around this idea that some of the lipids in meat could be oxidized when you cook it and that maybe yeah. adding Maybe adding things like certain herbs could could um, could ameliorate the oxidation of those lipids in the meat when you cook it. And the first thought I had was something that you referred to. Basically, if there's a lipid in any food and you cook it, you're going to oxidize it potentially. Um, you know, and that's one of the reasons that I recommend people do not cook with olive oil. I don't even think people should be using seed oils. But the more saturated an oil is, the less likely it is to undergo oxidation when you expose it to heat. This is just kind of basic general, you know, general organic chemistry. Um, and so this isn't a unique, uh, this isn't unique to me. This is just anytime you heat an oil, you are going to have some products of oxidation. Um, but what I found interesting about this is that uh, there are actually some interventional studies that show that the increase of meat, red meat in the diet doesn't lead to increased oxidation or oxidative stress in humans. So like you're saying, I think we need, um, I think we need some, some translational studies to really, to really tell if this is a concern or not uh, for humans. This is just one study that I've talked about yeah. a lot in the past. You know, admittedly, they're saying increasing lean red meat. So who knows how much fat is in this red meat. But there's, this is a great study that I think should be shouted from the rooftops. I'm sure you've seen this one increased lean red meat intake does not elevate markers of oxidative stress and inflammation in humans. I mean, it's all there in the title, like uh, red meat does not lead to inflammation. And in this study, they weren't, they didn't talk about using any of these herbs to, to pretreat the meat or anything like that. Um, it was for sure. The other thing I thought. No, go ahead. 
I, I was saying it, oh, no, it was. I, I think it was uh, the in this particular study they consume meat as part of a healthier diet too. If I'm not, uh, if, yes. if I'm not mistaken, right? So. The idea is, is, and again, at, at the moment we don't have data on people on, uh, on purely carnivorous diets, and I know that's maybe something that your listeners are, are interested in. So at the moment we have to deal with uh, healthy omnivorous diets, right, rich in fruits and vegetables. But from what appears from those studies is that uh, if you co-consume red meat as part of uh, phytochemically rich fruits and vegetables, that you, you know, you, you do not see like indeed the, the F2 uh, like, like, well, this was measured in the plasma in this case, the oxidation products that uh, these do not seem to uh, to increase. And yeah, the, the mechanism behind it, again, we know can, can potentially... Uh, Okay, we're back. Go ahead. We're back. All right, all right. Where were we? Okay, yes, we were, we were talking about uh, about uh, the uh, the study with meat as part of uh, of healthy diets. Indeed, that you do not see some of these oxidation products uh, being being formed. And as mentioned, at the moment, we've people and us like ourselves have predominantly studied this as part of a, a healthy omnivorous diet that's also rich in phytochemically rich fruits and vegetables. And uh, uh, mechanistic data would suggest that some of these phytochemicals can maybe, uh, these in itself, at least that in my interpretation of the literature, and also what we're finding in our studies, is that these can have anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects potentially. So it may, even if red meat had uh, some uh, uh, effects with oxidation, these can be potentially be offset. And, and one thing I want to point out is that eating... Uh, co-consuming different foods to maybe get the good of one food, such as bioavailable nutrients, amino acids, zinc, iron, B12 for meat, taurine, and other unique nutrients, but offsetting potential by consuming other foods as part of it, that as well as mankind. I think about uh, people used to consume with their potatoes before we bred all the, uh, because then they could get uh, starch, right, and, and energy, uh, glucose from the potato, but they had to consume it with, with clay so that they wouldn't uh, get uh, uh, disease from that. Something like pemmican, like the natives did it. They probably don't know why, but they were like, okay, if we have dried meat and fat and we add a bunch of berries to it, this meat stays longer, probably because it didn't oxidize as much, right? So there, there's definitely some idea behind that uh, of traditional wisdom. Now we're finding that it's sort of mechanistic data and we need to study this more in humans. Uh, but there's definitely indication that the co-consumption of uh, phytochemicals can maybe help you obtain the goods from the meat, but decrease these oxidation uh, products that could happen with the uh, uh, oxidation of lipids, like you described, essentially the, the food just uh, going bad in a sense, right? Yeah, and let's go. Let's go another level deeper here, or, and and I think maybe we'll go two more levels deeper, but one at a time. The first level deeper. Let's talk about the the food matrix in meat and all of the unique chemicals in meat, because I think one of the things that often gets left out of this discussion is that there are unique chemicals in meat that might also protect us from products of oxidation. Things like carnosine and carnitine, 
Um, and these are part of a meat food matrix. And uh, this is the problem I have, or one of the problems I have, with uh, any of the products of meat cooking, whether it's heterocyclic amines, uh, N-nitrosothiols, heme iron. When they're studied in isolation, you're only going to get those things in the context of eating meat. But the meat is going to come with compounds like carnitine, carnosine, we can talk about taurine separately, that have intrinsic quote-unquote antioxidant ability, I mean, that, that have the ability to sort of like, I guess what I'm driving at here is, do you think there are actual compounds in the meat? And I want to talk about the phytochemicals in meat separately, but do you think there are actual compounds in the meat that could, that could also be playing a role here that could be valuable? I mean, it, it could be the case. And we do know, and we don't know as much about the pathways yet, but things like anserine and... Uh, Taurine, uh, carnosine, these can all be potential, uh, play potential antioxidant roles. So, existivine is a precursor to glutathione, which is a main intracellular antioxidant. Uh, taurine, and again, here we're getting into isolated compounds again, unfortunately, to study. So, we don't know how getting those into a meat matrix uh, impacts neurocognitive function, randomized controlled trials, uh, especially in older adults combination of anserine uh, and, and carnosine or taurine can have neurocognitive effects. Um, so there's definitely something in there. And I, I do want to highlight that of these compounds can also be found in like, uh, so it's, it's definitely not that meat is per se the only source of that. Anserine uh, or, or red in this case, well, anserine is named after, uh, after, after, isolated from duck, or that's at least where it was first found, and the name derived from duck, just like taurine is derived from taurus, like beef, right? And uh, uh, so these are definitely found in other sources of red meat too, and often found in fish. Uh, things like creatine also is found in, in fish as well. Uh, but these could uh, potentially neurocognitive effects, and especially in uh, critical lifestyle, uh, during uh, growth and development at a, at a young age, potentially uh, at an older age, or uh, another thing I'm particularly interested in studying is in uh, in, in uh, moms that are breastfeeding, for instance, or or you know, nursing mothers or pregnant mothers. Like, what is the effect uh, uh, there, and is there is there a concern, or can it be beneficial when uh, these uh, uh, some red meat is ingested as part of uh, a part of that, right? So, yeah, those are interesting, definitely interesting that, uh, that need to be studied in the future. But yeah, meat contains unique that uh, uh, such as taurine, anserine, creatine that could have potential neurocognitive effects and antioxidant effects, and they could potentially uh, uh, be a reason why, especially with unprocessed meat, you you. We see some of uh, some of those benefits, but I, I would also say it's that it's the extra stuff that you're not getting right when you eat. Uh, uh, obviously, eating uh, uh, sort of some muffin and egg right in like a processed matrix is going to be different than uh, just eating uh, eating a piece of, uh, of red meat. And we can go into that deeper too. What we have recently found too is that what you feed the animal is another important mechanism. You can increase uh, antioxidants in meat, which could also potentially uh, decrease lipid oxidation. And, uh, and at least what we're studying, 
that also decrease the uh, formation of some of these compounds. It is sort of marinating the meat from the inside out, right? By what you feed the animal. So instead of putting that herbs and spices on the meat, we have the animal consume biodiverse vegetation because a lot of these things, uh, like acid or catechin or uh, chlorogenic acid, right? Very well known from garlic, catechin from green tea. Well, things can also become, become concentrated in the meat when the animal is consuming biodiverse forage. So you're already increasing the antioxidant compound in the meat when animals are grass-fed, particularly grass-fed a wide variety of plants. Yeah, this is fascinating to me, and this is a study that I definitely want to dig into. Um, before we go there, just one, I want to show one thing. If people have questions about red meat and cancer, I've done a whole podcast on this, multiple podcasts on this. I think this is a great review that I would recommend people look at, Red Meat and Colon Cancer Review of the Mechanistic Evidence for Heme in the Context of Risk Assessment Methodology. As the authors of this paper point out, um, the N-nitrosyl compounds from the cooking, formed from the cooking of meat are actually different than the N-nitrosyl species that have been found to induce tumorogenic or tumorogenesis uh, through DNA adducts. You can see here that they're usually nitrosothiols and other N-nitrosyl compounds. So there's different N-nitrosyl compounds yeah. formed when you cook meat, um, at least according to these authors. And then, as I stated earlier, the, um, the heme iron studies are often done in calcium-deficient rat models, which are probably not super relevant. And as we've sort of hinted at before, um, the uh, the lack of a, of a meat matrix for many of these studies yep. is something to be aware of and the potential I, I, that Yeah, the potential that I, this is a, this is a real flaw in these methodologies. Yes, go ahead No, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there That's such an important nuance of all is that a lot of these studies and that's why I'm also careful in, in, in stating some of those things because uh, This has been studied through a nutritional reductionistic lens, which is okay. We see these uh, uh, nutrients like uh, nitrosyl point out often in the animal studies they've as isolated compounds and then these isolated compounds are the meat matrix and therefore we uh, uh, yeah you know draw conclusions from that so there's some uh, and that work is very important to get but then, yeah, it does have to converge also with uh, some of the, the data that we see in randomized controlled trials where clearly if you consume meat as part of a healthier diet, some reason to think that maybe these problems are, are somewhat mitigated. And uh, there's at least some, uh, yeah, that is, that is at least a hypothesis that, uh, that, that with testing because, uh, yeah, that does seem to be... Uh, some, some plausible evidence to, to suggest that that may be the case. Yeah, I think that's very clear. And I think that the question that hopefully the research will help us understand is, um, uh, and I think this is not even really a, a major question, but we can hopefully corroborate it with further research is how much of that is the absence of ultra processed foods or the presence of other foods? Because if we need to be eating meat with certain plants, we want to know that. Um, but if we don't need to be eating meat with certain plants, we also want to know that because that helps people make certain choices. Obviously, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with my with my line of thinking and the idea that I'm not convinced that all parts of plants are always good for all people. But I will say that over time, my perspective has kind of softened a little bit. But let's go to this study, which is something that you mentioned. And this one was really a game changer for me when I saw it. And I was 
really thought it was cool that you guys did this study that uh, you and Fred Provenza and others had published this study. And I, I love that you said this. Uh, this is basically marinating meat from the inside out. Um, because one of the criticisms of an animal-based diet or a carnivore diet is that you are not going to get phytonutrients. And I saw the study and I thought, well, <laughs> I guess if you're eating well-raised meat, which is something I'm a huge advocate for, grass feeding, grass finishing, I'm a huge supporter of farms like Belcampo, Primal Pastures. Here in Costa Rica, I even have access to grass-fed grass. Raise meat through a farm called Grassfoot Costa Rica, and there's cows literally outside my doors uh, here. I, I, we were talking before the podcast. I got lost today on my way back from a gas station to the beach, and I picked up a Costa Rican guy on the road. He took me to see his his bulls. <laughs> you know, he, we had these toros, and he he took me. Them. He was going to bring them to do some work, and there's there's cows everywhere here that are eating forage and eating some of the greenest grass I've ever seen. But how cool to think that consistent that the, what an animal eats actually accumulates in its in its in its muscles and in its organs and that if we're eating foods that are proper food. eating a species appropriate diet that is a variety of plants presumably on a larger field this is another uh, reason to advocate for regenerative agriculture that the that the actual phytonutrients or the the micronutrients composition of this meat is going to be very different, different. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right, uh, Paul. And I came sort of from a human nutrition standpoint initially too, because if we feed uh, humans a phytochemically rich diet, you can uh, several uh, conjugates of, of these phytochemicals in the urine. Uh, so, and also in animal data, if you feed uh, or lab rats, and mice, a phytochemically rich diet, these polyphenols end up in their brain, ends up in their liver, ends up in their muscle, right? So there's no reason per se to think that this wouldn't be the case in animals. Uh, and, and what you indeed see and what we found, and this was a literature review, and we have more primary data that is going to be published pretty soon here too, is that, um, and we also saw it in another paper, which, which was a alternative which we can maybe go in later but anyway i was looking at this data when i got it back and i was looking at us like why are all these plant compounds in our meat and we tested grass-fed beef but then obviously it was for me it was also an aha moment thinking that well uh it's not because i was we were sloppy with our sample processing and a bunch of grass was uh, mixed with the meat it was because uh, obviously these, these phytochemicals from the forage are transferred from the forage into the meat and, and become part of, of the meat matrix and the milk matrix then. And what you clearly see is that uh, the more bio which is, so if an animal consumes 20 plants, 50 plants, or 100 plants on a pasture, animals grazing monoculture pastures, which unfortunately is, is all too often sort of the, the case pastures in, uh, we're doing on-farm research and uh, on one of the farms, there's a lot of biodiversity. And then you look at the farm next door and it's May, uh, well, but now it's August, but in May, the pasture was already overgrazed and, and, and grazed down and uh, lacking biodiverse for it. So that grass-fed meat, which can also label grass-fed meat, is much less phytochemically rich than the animals raised on biodiverse forage. So grass-fed beef isn't grass-fed beef isn't grass-fed beef. There's huge variation. And then, but even if you compare it to uh, animals finished in a feedlot on a grain-based 
they have the lowest amounts of phytochemicals. And, and there was a, definitely a nice study that uh, looked at this already 30 years ago, because that, that's also the golden rule in science, right? If you can think of it as a good chance someone else has thought of it before you and done it in so, some sort of way. So they looked at some of these volatile compounds, which uh, uh, some of them could be classified in, into the uh, polyphenolic uh, class. And what they found was that when the animal goes into the feedlot, after 60 days, these uh, phytochemicals are cut in half. After 120 days, they're further down and, and you end up with a three, four fold reduction. And what we know is a lot of these individual compounds, we could detect them in grass fed beef, we couldn't even detect them in, uh, in grain fed beef. So there's definitely a lot of uh, these phytochemicals. And these are polyphenols. People think of it like, think of things like flavonoids, right? You associate it with berries, for instance. Well, these also are in, uh, in, in meat and milk. And uh, like, was, like acid, uh, catechin from. Uh, which is believed to uh, be responsible for the health benefits of green tea. Well, when the animal consumes biodiverse forage, and then you find these in the milk too, and we have research on it, but when we looked at the literature on some of the compounds in green tea, end of the spectrum of green teas, uh, these compounds like, like catechin were found in similar amounts at the higher end grass-fed milks and that people don't think of uh, this uh, too and i certainly don't want to make the case that that is always the case because some green teas are much higher in this and of course plant foods are going to be higher in phytochemicals because you're diluting it right through a, a middleman or in this case a, a middle cow but it's really interesting to see that a lot of these compounds are being incorporated into the meat and milk and they these are at least presumed to have uh, potential anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects, and it's sort of indeed what you, as a, we alluded to earlier, marinating meat from the inside out and protecting against lipid peroxidation, and this will impact the inflammatory response to meat and milk. Uh, there has been some studies on it that we have a control, randomized control trial going on to that. Yeah, that's what the what the future will have to uh, find whether this actually uh, has a plausible health effect on us. I don't have the study pulled up, um, but I, I know you've mentioned the study in the past that there is an interventional study. Now, the, the metrics that they used were somewhat questionable and, and the, the sample size wasn't large, but they, they compared the consumption of, I think, mainstream non-processed red meat to wild kangaroo meat. You know the one I'm talking about? And, yeah. and it did look like the, king, the kangaroo meat had, had, different, had a different uh, biochemical profile. Uh, in the people that were consuming it. And I do not think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do not think they were comparing the kangaroo to grass-fed, grass-finished meat. Um, no, it was, what, yeah, it's a ARIA study, 2011. Uh, and indeed, what the authors did was, and this was a post-brandial study, so post what uh, happened was uh, participants came into the lab, they eat Wagyu beef, grain-fed beef, very fat, uh, finished in feedlots and they kangaroo and they both consumed that as I think they had some potatoes and peas with it. The thing that they, they changed was the meat. So people came in one, ate the meal with the Wagyu beef, came in another week, ate the kangaroo. Kangaroo forage on native pastures. Presumably it was more phytochemical rich. And there's definitely been some work done in kangaroo to uh, to, to suggest that. The Wagyu beef, um, very less phytochemicals. And what was is that there, the inflammatory response, we always have a little bit of an inflammatory response after eating, that's, that's completely normal and, and important in, in human physiology, but 
they saw a slightly uh, or they saw a, an increased uh, inflammatory response with the Wagyu beef and the idea at least behind then compared to the kangaroo meat, which was at a lower uh, inflammation, uh, IL-6 and C-reactive protein, TNF-alpha. So the idea is, is that, okay, if you repeat that for multiple months or, you know, you would probably potentially see a, see a health effect. And another mind is uh, one with pecorino cheese, which is uh, cheese made from sheep milk. Pecorino, uh, Sardinia, Italy, the sheep raised on biodiverse mountain. Mountain pastures are amongst the most biodiverse pastures we find. We find this in our work too. We've done some work on uh, from with a rancher who raises his cattle in uh, the mountains of Idaho. Glenn Alzinga is his name, Old Spring Ranch, and he finishes animals on on mountain pastures. And those are amongst the most phytochemically rich pastures. It's also been shown in France when the animals are raised in on, on the, in the Pyrenees. Well, anyway, the sheep cheese raised in Sardinia. Uh, from sheep milk raised in Sardinia compared to a uh, just commercially available uh, cheese that uh, was was uh, fat. They also showed that after 10 weeks, it was half a pound of cheese a week, that there was a lower, at least a chronic systemic inflammatory response. So we have two studies going on right now. We're looking at this uh, short term. So replicating that kangaroo with that kangaroo study was Two different animals and the fat content was different between uh, the kangaroo meat and the beef so now we're matching it for fat grass fat versus grain fat we also have a plan there as a third arm see what the responses are and then we're also doing a long-term study with multiple weeks of uh, of, of consumption uh seeing how that impacts uh, uh multiple week uh low-grade systemic inflammation in a, in a fasted state so we're studying it post the uh, post new response as well as to see if, uh, if, if on paper, the grass would be look healthier, or will have a, have a health benefit uh, when consumed over time, or we'll see. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. Um, it, it's, it's very interesting to me, and it, it makes me wonder, and I think it's a good, it's yet another reason to think about voting with your dollars for grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised beef. Maybe at the end of this podcast, we'll get into a little bit of the ethics of eating meat, maybe a little bit of the environmental stuff. I don't know if we'll have time today, but uh, that's something, that's a reason that I feel so good about supporting these farms of this podcast is that clearly um, these meats uh, appear to be evolutionarily consistent and uh, beneficial for humans in many ways. When I was with the Hadza, and I've joked that that is my, uh, my go-to refrain now, but I did spend two weeks with the Hadza in in uh, in february of this year um they're they're always eating animals that are eating a very biodiverse uh type of, of diet themselves now i, I want to say something because i think my audience will, will really find this interesting um my perspective on these chemicals has shifted a little bit over time when i wrote my book i sort of took this different uh perspective and i thought well i'm not convinced that these poly and, and reading this study about phytochemicals in beef uh, that you published was one of the main things that got me thinking about this. And I thought, maybe they're not so bad for us after ball, but maybe I would prefer to get them from an animal that's more evolutionarily adapted to eating them than I am. Um, because I think of these herbivores as these sort of large plant processing facilities that have millions of years of evolution in their phase one and phase two detoxification to sort out which of these compounds are harmful and detoxify some of these 
compounds and, and sort of sort out because I think that some of these phytochemicals may be beneficial for us and some of them are very clearly plant defense chemicals that are trying to do harm to us. And so I, I've been sort of thinking about this and mulling it over. It was one of the reasons I was looking forward to this conversation. But the way I see it now is like, maybe there's an argument to be made for, you know, you're getting a salad in your meat when your meat is eating grass-fed, is grass-finned, you know, and regeneratively raised. And so I thought that was quite interesting. And I, I do think that at least my hypothesis might be, or where my mind has gone now, is like, maybe these compounds aren't harmful for us, or maybe it's just beneficial to get them uh, via proxy of an animal that's already processed them properly as, a, as an evolutionary herbivore. Um, I just, I, I kind of come back to this. And as you know, uh, I'm not sure how familiar with my work uh, you are, but I, I've become a fan of fruit in, in the last uh, year, few years. Um, originally, I kind of, I mean, it, I, I must say that I, I was one of those zealous people who thought, no, fructose is bad for humans. I too was misled, and I will fully admit that, that I've changed my mind and evolved and continued to learn over the last few years. So I don't fear fruit, and, <clears throat> but I do see some sort of a, uh, a difference between fruit and, quote, vegetables. Those often get lumped in. Um, and I see vegetables as like the leaves and the stems and the roots of plants along with the seeds, quote unquote. And I see these, this is just my perspective. You, you may not agree and I'll certainly get your thoughts on this too. Um, these, are, these are all phytochemical rich, but these are the parts of a plant that plants don't want to get eaten, quote unquote. And so the question that I kind of ask is, <clears throat> how evolved are we at detoxifying these chemicals or processing these chemicals from these parts of plants versus fruit? Which is something that it seems if I, if, I, if I squint my eyes plants a little bit, the plants actually want us to eat. So you and I had talked a little bit about this offline, but um, I'm building a, an animal-based research, uh, animal-based nutrition <clears throat> research foundation nonprofit. And, and I hope to be able to fund in the future studies that kind of ask this question. I don't, I think I'm, this question is very interesting to me. I'm not sure mainstream medicine is super interested in this question, but I do have an interest in the difference between fruits and vegetables uh, as part of a complete quote unquote healthy diet. I see a healthy diet as a, as a diet that is evolutionarily consistent, that is free from the processed food that we talked about earlier, seed oils, processed sugars, that is eating all of the foods in a whole food matrix or the vast majority of them is perfect and then and then this this question of fruits versus vegetables and is, is an interesting one for me because um, I, I do I do wonder and and I would love to see an experiment in the future with a, uh, a, a quote animal based diet where people are eating fruit and honey um, and and meat and organs but they don't have the vegetables you know are they gonna get more inflammation from a group of the vegetables the same or less so that that's just kind of the framing I just wanted to offer that to my audience yeah. because um, I wanted to share how my views are kind of changing on this. And people can also refer back to the debate that I had with Alex Leaf. That was a good friendly debate. But he kind of said to me in that, in, that, in that debate, Paul, so you're not actually worried about plant chemicals. What you're worried about is plant defense chemicals. And that was a good characterization. I just, I find it interesting that there are defense chemicals in plants. And I think we should be aware of this and, um, and try and understand uh, where within the hierarchy of foods we should place vegetables, that is stems, roots, leaves, and seeds versus fruits. Uh, I think we both agree and many agree that, that meat and organs are an essential part of any healthy human diet. So I rambled. Uh, I'll, let you, I'll let you respond to that yeah. any way that you would like. Okay. Now I want to Paul, is that what I think maybe the vegetables require more out-of-the-body processing 
in order for them to become safe to eat, right? Like fruit, we can just pick them off a tree and eat them. Well, uh, try to consume a bean and you're not going to be happy, right? Uh, so these can go through extensive processing of like uh, sprouting, fermenting, pounding, and what, what people used to do uh, to that all, all the time, right? And we've fallen for this so many times where uh, uh, fertilization is very common in, in traditional cultures. Then we took it uh, to corn back to Europe and everyone got pellagra, right? And uh, why was that? Because we thought, well, we don't have to process the corn. We can just uh, just eat it like that. So I would think that with some of these, uh, these compounds and some of the oxalates in some green leafy vegetables with cooking, there, there can definitely be uh, uh, increase uh, its, its ability to digest and absorb. And of course, there are going to be inter-individual differences. I mean, some people uh, may be more sensitive to it than, uh, than others, right? Like uh, some people eat broccoli and they're completely fine. Other people eat broccoli and they uh, get, uh, get uh, gut distress or, or things like that, right? So there's definitely also in the individuality. But I agree also with, with the point that you make, and it's definitely an interesting hypothesis, is that there's certainly overlap with some of the phytochemical compounds that are found in, uh, in the plant kingdom. Uh, you can get many flavonoids from potatoes. You can get them from berries, from uh, certain uh, uh, plants or, you know, certain vegetables too. So there's definitely sort of an, an overlap. But one thing I do want to offer is that, and, and you see this, and uh, Acknowledging the limitations of associative data, but there's also some randomized control trials on that topic, is that dietary diversity ends up being selecting from a wider variety of does seem to increase uh, uh, the variety of phytochemicals that we get into our body and also is associated with better health. But again, we could argue that sometimes people that are able, that will select more diets, uh, Know, may or may not other uh, potential health uh, effects, but that's also an, an interesting thing to look at uh, in in the future. As as we see with the animals too, if the animals are able to select a wider uh, array of plants on pasture, they end up with a higher amount and wider variety of phytochemicals. And what I think is particularly unique with animals is and why that can be used in way of increasing the phytochemicals in our diet is because animals consume consume vegetation that you and I cannot can, uh, consume, right? So we may be able to get some more unique compounds like, uh, uh, for instance, beta-pinanine, which are also found in some, some plant essential oils, but pinanine, named after the pine tree. Uh, you and I don't eat pine trees, uh, but <laughs> animals, it's all... So when animals are eating a lot of sagebrush, they, uh, they can incorporate some of these, uh, these, these terpenes that could have potentially uh, help promoting effects on, in our body. So those are just, just some thoughts and, and we need to do more work, better understand it. And, and also one thing I'm very interested in too is that the bioavailability is, uh, is getting some of these compounds from, from animal source foods. Does that change? Then we get them from plant foods because probably in the animal source foods, we, we there's a, and I, you know, anti-nutrients is, I don't like to use the term because it's, it's what can be an anti-nutrient can also be bad sometimes. And uh, it's definitely not as black and white, but it may not come with, with some of the inhibitory compounds in foods. Uh, but certainly there's other ways of getting rid of some of these compounds in, uh, 
in uh, such as soaking, for instance, can get rid of a lot of phytic acid, right, and sprouting, and uh, you might reduce uh, phytic acid in beans by 80 to 90 percent, in which case uh, maybe it is safe for consumption for uh, for many people because uh, obviously that beans are and legumes are consumed uh, widely the world. Yeah, you bring up a great point that, uh, and this is something that I have also talked about in the past and in my book, that, that, it, that the consumption of plant foods historically has often been with greater degrees of, of processing, whether it's fermentation or soaking or sprouting. And, and, and that, I think, is a pretty clear indication that there is some degree of, of um, I'm not sure what you were to use there. You'll probably object to my use of the word toxicity. I would say toxicity. We could say um, that, that perhaps the nutrients are more bioavailable, but um, that there's a real there's a real precedent for for this processing of these foods, um, and uh, I will say that from my perspective, sometimes the processing often the processing reduces uh, some of these compounds that could be detrimental to humans, but but doesn't reduce them completely and doesn't affect some of them at all. For instance, um, uh, phytic acid you know is not completely reduced. Oxalates get rid of lectins pretty difficult to get rid of unless you pressure cook something, um, and um, those are something I have significant concerns about, definitely with beans um, and other other lectin-containing foods. So there's there's interesting there's an interesting line of thinking there. And for me, at least in my uh, schema, uh, the paradigm that I begin to construct is like I, I do see a hierarchy of foods arise, and I think, okay, why are people eating beans? Um, and if they could hunt animals, would they eat beans? I wonder. You know, the, the Hadza, this is just one example, but the Hadza don't really go looking for leaves and seeds unless they don't have meat. So I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. They certainly will eat some fruit every once in a while. There was a baobab tree outside of camp. And, you know, when they were bored, they would go over to the baobab tree and throw some rocks at it and eat some baobab fruit. And the women would often dig tubers, which we would eat, and then spit out the quid because there's so much fiber. There's so many fibrous little strands in, in the tubers that you can't actually eat them. Um, and then when we got honey, we would, we would eat without any, uh, any regard for the amount of calories in the honey. But uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't really go out picking, like, pumpkin leaves and things like that when I was there or any, any real vegetables. So I wonder. I would like to go back and spend more time with them and spend more time with uh, the Ikung in Botswana and Namibia. And, of course, these observations are limited, and, and I, I want to be careful about that. But I do think that they are consistent with this sort of hierarchy of foods in terms of what, what we're looking for as humans. But this idea that, that phytochemicals can be found in meat and that, that if your food is eating a more diverse diet is, is quite, quite unique. Um, do you want to start talking? You mentioned a study. If you have any more comments on this, you're welcome to offer them. But I would love to talk about the research you're currently doing and the metabolomics study that you mentioned comparing uh, real meat and plant-based meat, because plant-based meat is, is such a, it's a hot topic right now, and, and uh, my audience will have no, uh, uh, there will be no uh, confusion about where I stand on this topic, but uh, let's talk, can you talk about the metabolomics study that you did with plant-based meat versus regular meat? And uh, obviously you can offer any other thoughts you have about what I was just mentioning as well. Great, yeah, no, we can uh, dig into that uh, into that study for a bit. Um, so yeah, what we did was we uh, compared grass-fed beef uh, to a, a plant, popular plant-based meat alternative that uh, that was soy-based. Um, the reason why we chose grass-fed beef, a lot of people ask me, why did you choose grass-fed beef? Well, the reason why we choose grass-fed beef is, is because both types of quote-unquote beef are considered uh, uh, more environmentally friendly and healthier options sometimes, at least by the consumer. They're also roughly in the, more more comparable in terms of price point, right? Grass-fed beef and plant-based 
alternatives, which are even at the moment a little bit more expensive than grass-fed beef. Um, so that was the reason why we chose grass-fed beef. Environmentally uh, friendly, we run uh, metabolomics, and metabolomics is a technique that allows you to look uh, a large number of small molecule uh, food samples. Uh, and that's, these can be things like amino acids, fatty acids, peptides, phytochemicals, uh, carboxylic acids, you name it, a, a whole wide uh, variety of, uh, of, of metabolites, and many would be considered nutrients. Also vitamins and mineral derivatives and yeah, carotenoids. Um, so always techniques. Uh, to that and we really went beyond the nutrients that appear on, on food nutrition labels on the nutrient facts panels we see up to 13 nutrients appearing uh the database food database does a little bit better job and tracks 150 components in foods routinely but foods in a natural state could hundreds to thousands of metabolites that are potentially capable of impacting human health many of which do not appear on nutrition facts panels so for a consumer that uh, picks up a plant-based meat alternative or a package of beef, we'll look at the vitamins and minerals and the protein content and the fat and think, huh, this plant-based meat contains similar nutrients based on these nutrition facts panels. Now we were interested in going beyond that and looking at sort of the whole food matrix. So we run our metabolomics approaches and we found uh, a 90% difference in metabolite abundance. Uh, so 90% of the metabolite either in higher or lower amounts in the beef or the plant-based meat alternative and vice versa. Uh, about 60 metabolites were either unique to uh, to the beef or the plant-based meat that some were only found in the beef. Others were plant-based meat alternative, which suggests that uh, these products are not nutritionally interchangeable when studying the whole food matrix. And, you know, we certainly found potentially beneficial compounds found uh, uh, things such as taurine, answerine, creatine, uh, carnosine, etc. in the, uh, well, not taurine because the specific method that we used did not allow for identification of taurine, but uh, we know it's in there. But carotene, answerine, cysteamine, a bunch of other carnosine, a bunch of other uh, metabolites that uh, can have potentially antioxidant and neurocognitive effects. But then on the other end, the plant-based meat alternatives, yeah, we found certain isoflavones, uh, other phenolic uh, antioxidants, in there, uh, genistein, diacin, uh, also uh, uh, different amounts of, uh, of, of vitamins and minerals. But the point being is we cannot determine from the data if one consumed the other, and that's also beside the point. The point is, is that what we found was is that these are not nutritionally interchangeable. It is not even an apples to oranges comparison. It is a meat to soy comparison. They're about as different as you would expect meat and soy to be. So that is important, at least for consumers to note, is that because uh, uh, oftentimes we label these things as protein foods, right? Just because they contain proteins that they're nutritionally interchangeable, but protein comes with a wide variety of other nutrients. So this work was really uh, aimed at, uh, at studying the whole food matrix and seeing if there were differences or, uh, or similarities. And uh, yeah, we've had quite substantial differences and concluded that uh, Based meat alternatives are not one-to-one nutritional replacements. And this is yet another organ meats, because if you look at this food matrix of an organ, like a liver or a heart or a kidney or a testicle, uh, and you compare it to muscle, they're completely different. Uh, and and uh, they're, they're, they're probably more similar than soy and grass-fed meat, 
but they're the muscle meat and liver are very different and liver is very different than heart is different than kidney is different than pancreas is different than spleen and so this is why you know why i built heart and soil why i think consuming organs is so valuable and i don't know do you know anyone that's done any of this research looking at sort of the whole food matrix of matrix of organs and the unique yeah. sort of compounds that are in organ foods and if not hopefully we can do it in the we're, future yeah we're uh, have some data on that and uh, I can uh, it's not published yet but uh, I'll, I'll give you the scoop uh, liver contains higher amounts of these phytochemicals and uh, antioxidants about uh, uh, about like two to threefold higher the amounts like if you look at the total amounts so they're definitely richer in these phytochemicals so it seems like indeed we're studying this in grass-fed beef uh, raising biodiverse pastures they're picking up a bunch of phytochemicals in their muscle meat, but they pick up higher amounts in the liver for sure. So these get concentrated uh, at higher uh, to a higher. Um, what we haven't been interested in doing is so this is a targeted phytochemical assay. So we're specifically studying uh, phytochemicals, uh, polyphenolic compounds, carotenoids, the gopherols, uh, uh, within the, the subclass of phenolic acid. We look at the things like. Uh, uh, hydroxybenzoic acid, hydroxycinnamic acids, which are, are the main uh, classes of, uh, of polyphenols. Um, and then we go deeper into like indole compounds and terpenes and et cetera. But those are higher in, in organ meats. So that's another linking it back to our previous uh, discussion. These polyphenols get incorporated into a higher amount of organ meats. So it's more nutrient dense. Not in terms, not only in terms of vitamins and minerals, it also concentrates these phytochemicals to a higher amount. Um, and so that that's one of the things that we found. And then also potential, which is something you can measure using a, a specific assay like, uh, uh, like a ferric power assay uh, or as a, an FC assay that looks at the total antioxidant composition that is also higher. So yeah, there's definitely a higher amount of these phytochemicals appearing. But to that point, what I do want to do also is run more of an ontogenous approach and look at maybe like a thousand or two thousand metabolites in muscle and in liver, and then look at unique compounds in there that uh, unique peptides that may be found in in liver that are not found in muscle meat and uh, and vice versa. So. The peptides are particularly interesting to me. So these are not phytochemicals. Now we're talking about these less than 50 amino acid uh, sequence, um, uh, you know, less than 50 amino acids in these peptides that have unique signaling yeah. roles. And, and then you can go down an amazing rabbit hole and, you're, and you think like, what kind of peptides are found in heart? What kind of peptides are found in kidney? And could these have a unique role for human health? You know, what kind of peptides are found in the brain? When I was with the Hadza, we ate baboon brain. And, yeah, so I find all of this to be quite fascinating. And then, then you ask these questions that are particularly interesting to me, which is like, what kind of peptides are found in testicle? You know, and, and, and how, does, how does a man, uh, how, is, how does it affect a man to eat, to eat uh, cow's testicles or bull, bull balls? You know, I just went to, to Cobano here in Costa Rica the other day and I bought some bull balls and we have a new supplement from Hardened Soil called Whole Package with desiccated testicles. And, it seems to be quite powerful. So this is all super interesting stuff. These peptides are, I think, somewhere that, that we really need to explore. We had a little, who knows what happens, we had a little uh, technology thing. But yeah, you said you had some more thoughts about organs. What are your thoughts about organs? Well, what was interesting uh, about these things that we know play a role in, uh, in human health, such as uh, uh, taurine, which is 
particularly rich in the heart, uh, CoQ10, also rich in the heart, right? We know this also play a role potentially in uh, heart health in, uh, and we again notice mainly from animal models in rodents, but there's no reason to assume they wouldn't play a role in heart health in humans too, right? So what is interesting to, to see is that some of these nutrients that uh, play a role uh, in our specific organs, such as heart health, are also most recently expressed in the same organ of the animal. So that's uh, uh, that's certainly an interesting hypothesis that uh, that we need to, to study more. And uh, but yeah, you do you do see that uh, there's this uh, this sort sort of overlap with the nutrients appearing in organ meats, and then uh, these nutrients ubiquitously expressed in our organs too. So that's. Uh, that's definitely an, uh, an interesting uh, thing to look at. And, uh, but I also, I'm, I must say, it is good that you're using the whole animal because I just think out of respect for the animal, that is also the right thing to do, to consume as much from the animal as possible, right? Because, uh, I mean, I, I don't really, per se, do research into, uh, into the ethics, per se. Uh, some of the people I work with, like Fred Provenza, is more well-versed into that. Um, but the, uh, the, the short end being is just that if you consume more of the animal, just out of respect for the animal, I think that's that's a great thing to do. And there was actually a study out of Germany too, is that uh, suggests consuming more organ meat, consuming more of the animal, would already uh, just by by nature uh, uh, reduce potentially the greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the CO two equivalents expressed per uh, per kg of beef, right? Just because you're consuming more of the of the animal, because we usually think of it as like retail cuts, and you're consuming. 60% of the animal, but another 20% of the animal, uh, organs, bones, uh, skin, are perfectly consumable too. Yeah, it makes sense from so many different perspectives. Um, I, I believe that when this podcast comes out, I will have released uh, the previous two podcasts with uh, Alex Epstein and Patrick Moore. If you guys are interested in the uh, sort of environmental impacts of meat, the sort of uh, a deep dive into uh, climate change in general, which was quite eye-opening for me in the environmental uh, changes that the earth has undergone over the last few hundred million years. Uh, please listen to those podcasts. It'll help put all of this into context as well. Um, so we've, we've kind of touched on this a little bit throughout the podcast, but tell me a little more about the current experiments you have going on in your lab, because I'm really excited to hear the results of these. And I think these are exactly the type of research that, that we need. Um, yeah. Great. So we have a four-week randomized control trial going on. It's a crossover design, meaning that every participant will consume two diets. One diet is uh, red meat in the context of a what we call traditional American diet, rich in uh, the also often vilified potato, uh, but also rich in fruits and vegetables, uh, full-fat dairy, uh, nuts and, and things like that. And then we're comparing that to a uh, more uh, yeah, standard American diet rich in ultra processed food. So same amount of beef, uh, similar foods, but in one case they might come into more of a, a packaged matrix and the other case may more of an unpackaged matrix. So think of it as that you're consuming some uh, steak or, 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 or beef patty with green beans and potatoes. Well, what happens if you consume uh, that beef patty with some uh, potato fries, for instance, and uh, and some uh, green beans in uh, in, in, uh, in, in that is comes with, with in a packaged version, right? Like what what happens then? Or you consume broccoli and some cheese, or you consume broccoli and cheese sauce and things like that. So we're we're really matching uh, the uh, 
types of food that uh, that we're eating and we're looking at this because many perspective or, or at least associative data would suggest that uh, consuming red meat as we talked to in the beginning of the podcast consuming red meat as part of a healthy diet seems relatively benign for uh, for health so these associations with uh, heart disease and, and cancer and metabolic disease become largely neutral when you consume red meat as part of an ultra-processed diet, that's where you run into issues. So we are studying that uh, prospectively in a randomized controlled trial. And I don't have a, a lot of data to share yet because we're wrapping up a study. What I can tell you is that one group is improving their triglycerides and, and uh, uh, quite a bit uh, in four weeks from uh, pre to post. Uh, I, can put my chips into what group it is, but uh, we'll, we'll see which group it is. Uh, maybe, I, I think it's the, the whole food side, but we'll, we'll see when, uh, when we get the final data back. But in any case, uh, one group is improving, their triglycerides go down, uh, cholesterol, what we see typically is that their, their HDL cholesterol uh, uh, changes a bit, goes up a bit, LDL maybe uh, goes down a bit. but. Cholesterol would probably take longer than uh, than four weeks to change, but we do see some changes in, in the triglycerides. And at the end of the study, we'll also look at inflammatory profiles, interleukin-6, C-reactive protein. And one thing we're also looking at is we're using metabolomics approaches to look at the metabolites that circulate in our blood. About 50% of what circulates in our blood is directly related to our diet. And we can use these metabolites to look at metabolic pathways, uh, such as disease pathways, which uh, may be uh, either enriched uh, and be indicative of, uh, of maybe like mitochondrial dysfunction or other impaired uh, glucose tolerance and things like that. So we're studying whether eating high amounts of red meat, and it's, it's relatively high because it's, it's daily consumption of red meat, um, whether this uh, uh, modulates the cardiometabolic risk factors. And of course, there are going to be limitations of the study because we're not comparing it to a diet that is uh, exclusively in plant foods. We're also not comparing it to a diet that is only containing red meat, right? Like a carnivorous diet. So those are obviously some limitations and, and, and will require future work. But yeah, it will be interesting to see if, uh, if that uh, modifies uh, the risk factors uh, with, uh, with, with red meat. If we consume it as part of a healthy diet for a quote-unquote unhealthier standard American diet. I think that that is the first piece to establish this. I think that we need to establish in the nutrition sphere very clearly that, that when eaten in the context of a healthy diet, red meat and organs are incredibly health-promoting for humans. And that's what you and I believe. We will wait for further research to corroborate that. I think evolution shows us that. Anthropology shows us that. There's already studies that, that, that show us that, but we need more data. And then I think from there, we will have to ask the more detailed questions, which is what part of the healthy diet and what part of the, of the uh, standard American diet are so damaging? Because it sounds like uh, in your standard American diet, people are going to be having processed food, which is going to be certainly much higher in linoleic acid. Although, I don't know, it would be interesting to look at levels of linoleic acid in those two diets. Presumably those uh, potato, the French fries are cooked in some sort of vegetable oil. And so I wonder about that kind of stuff, too. So there's a lot of details. And this is why nutrition research is so hard. And, and I think the studies need to be constantly refined. Uh, so we say, okay, what about this variable? What about that variable? And uh, so that we can really give people clear direction in the future and say, hey, this is what we know. Um, 
and will we'll create health in a human. But I think that the most important thing is that, that red meat is not vilified incorrectly and organs are not vilified incorrectly because they're clearly uh, very healthy for humans, or at least that's what we both believe very strongly. Well, yeah, well, at least what I would say is what I think, based on the literature, is that they're at least not disease-causing. Let's just say that, that there's a reason to assume that they're not disease-causing. And whether they whether they are truly health-promoting, I mean, they contribute strongly to nutrient adequacy. So by that token, they can be health-promoting, I guess, if, uh, if we look at it from that lens. Uh, but yeah, the, ne the next future steps would indeed be sort of trying to tease these are part dose, right? Like, uh, what if uh, if we uh, uh, have a dose responsiveness of, of consuming even more red meat, and and how does that uh, uh, impact things? So, there's certainly many questions to be answered. But I agree that we first need to sort of start from the basics and just uh, evaluate what happens when we consume red meat as part of uh, yeah, quote unquote, you know, healthy omnivorous diet versus a uh, quote unquote health unhealthy omnivorous diet, which uh, being, being the standard American diet. And, and we, in our study, we call it the traditional American diet because we yeah, selected the same number or the same type of foods, right? So we're not studying this per se as part of a Mediterranean diet or a uh, traditional Japanese diet or anything like that, which are often uh, doubted as healthy diets, which, uh, by the way, are also omnivorous. They all, always consume moderate amounts of animal fruit, so we should, certainly shouldn't uh, forget about that. Um, but yeah. That, that is an important uh, baseline to uh, to establish. What what happens if uh, if we co-consume those with uh, with phytochemically rich foods? Can we uh, at least uh, offset if there are negative effects? Right? Can we offset those? And uh, then the next question indeed would be also, what if we marinate that meat from the inside out by uh, giving these animals phytochemically rich diets, uh, gray fat liver versus grass fat liver? There really. In liver, you see uh, you see large differences uh, for sure. Everything seems to be amplified in the liver in terms of uh, micronutrients, but also in terms of phytochemicals. In that study that you're doing, are you measuring fasting insulin? We are, yeah. It, 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 uh, it's not changing uh, uh, to a great uh, uh, degree uh, in, so far in uh, in both of the groups. So, uh, but we are measuring uh, fasting insulin there. But it's you know we. The diet that we're uh, looking at, it is also, you know, rich in whole grains, rich in potatoes and, and things like that. And it's also not a weight loss diet. I want to stress that too, is that we try to keep our participants at weight maintenance as much as possible. And so far you could do that with a whole foods diet because definitely one of the things that we're running into is, and that's also suggested for Kevin Hall's study, when you, let's say people are, uh, uh, people tend to, want to consume a little bit more on the ultra-processed diet, but then have trouble hitting the same amount of calories on the traditional diet. So I'm not sure if we can totally uncouple the effects of, uh, of the health-promoting effects of such a uh, you know, diet rich in, in, in fiber and rich in whole foods from uh, its uh, uh, caloric intake, just because a lot of people struggle with uh, hitting those, uh, those caloric numbers that they would otherwise easily hit on a uh, standard American diet. So. And, and I would suggest that, uh, again, my hypothesis would be that, that, that these endogenous cannabinoids would be playing some role in that as well. Um, and I guess there's two sides to that coin. You know, is a, is a whole foods diet more satiating because it's more nutrient rich? Uh, I think that's probably the case. Is it more satiating because there's more fiber? I'm less convinced about that based on the research. The research that I've seen with high fiber diets and weight loss is not 
incredibly compelling. I think that uh, I had a friend growing up who was an Army Ranger, and he said that they would starve them for uh, a number of days in, in their Ranger indoctrination school, and they, they underfed them, and the guys would eat toilet paper and then just uh, drink water so that they would have something in their stomach to fill it up. But, but as we know, that doesn't really <laughs> – that's essentially to me what you're doing with fibers. You're just expanding it in the stomach. Uh, there's a whole separate podcast on fiber, guys, if you're curious about that. But um, I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of these nuances, and hopefully we can uh, start to kind of pick them apart and, and look at them um, individually, because I do have a lot of concerns about linoleic acid, and I do wonder um, how much of a role uh, it's the phytochemicals as a protective role versus uh, other the absence of other things. And then like we talked about, are there, are there enough phytochemicals in the meat to give a benefit as well? And is the quality of meat affecting things? There's so many interesting experiments. The last thing I'll mention, and then I'll, uh, we can wrap it up, is that there, there are, when I've looked at these studies, there, there are a number, and I've talked about these studies at length uh, on previous podcasts, there are a number of fruit and vegetable, and this is fruit and vegetable together, depletion studies that don't actually show significant negative effects on humans. So that, to me, is interesting, um, and it makes me, makes me wonder um, uh, how much of it is phytochemicals versus the absence or presence of uh, certain oils. Uh, basically, what I was saying was that there are these fruit and vegetable depletion studies where you can remove fruit and vegetables from people, and, and they don't have increased oxidative stress or markers of uh, DNA damage. So that's quite interesting, and I think it, it raises a lot of questions, and I think we need to sort this out. Or, you know, the question is, is the meat they're eating providing them enough of these phytochemicals, or what's really the, the determining factor here? Um, it's, it's an interesting set of research, and I look forward to more of it. And that the study that I really want to see done is with an animal-based diet. It's like meat and organs and fruit without the vegetables and, and how, that, how that affects people. So hopefully we'll, we'll do that study in the future as well. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting uh, thing. And I, I definitely think that, uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely overlap between fruits and, uh, and vegetables. I do want to highlight, uh, Paul, is that uh, the phytochemicals, we do get them through animal source fruits, but they are about 5 to 20 fold lower than if we get them directly from plant fruits. We don't know about the bioavailability yet, but uh, if that's different, right, if, if some, maybe some of the plant inhibitory compounds are, are reducing the bioaccessibility, and there we get into nuances like uh, uh, fermentation, sprouting, uh, and, and things like that, uh, which will have an impact. But with animal source foods, yeah, I mean, could that change the bioavailability? But I think here's the main thing is that it represents an avenue by which additional unique phytochemicals are ingested because animals consume plants that you and I cannot consume. So it's a way of increasing the, di the diversity of these, uh, of these compounds. But yeah, I agree that with, with you know, your hypothesis, it, it's a plausible one that uh, consuming uh, these with, uh, with a decent amount of, uh, of, of fruits could also, uh, also be the case. And uh, uh, whether the absence of, of vegetables or maybe some you know, vegetables that may be a little bit easier to digest, uh, uh, typically, than uh, maybe some of the brassica vegetables uh, or legumes versus, uh, let's think of zucchini or something like that, right, uh, which uh, uh, appears to be uh, lower in some of these uh, uh, inhibitory compounds. So those are also important nuances. Uh, but, yeah, ultimately, the end of the day is that I think the best advice to give to people is that you also have to know your body a little bit, right? If you, every time you eat broccoli, you run into gut issues, uh, then, yeah, you probably shouldn't eat broccoli, but you can get these nutrients from other, other sources too, right? And if you enjoy eating broccoli, then go, go for it eating, uh, eating broccoli. And the same with uh, certain uh, uh, meats too, right? Like, uh, yeah, if you enjoy eating fish and shellfish, then you'll get a lot of the same nutrients that you would get in meat, right? And uh, 
So those are also important uh, things to, to notice that uh, we do see it. Like if you study 20 humans, you get 20 different responses almost to an extent, right? And I think we need to do a better job in research too to highlight those uh, individual differences. And that's why I think we shouldn't approach this from a one-size-fits-all approach, which uh, I think is something that can sometimes plague nutrition science is that uh, we extrapolate certain uh, uh, findings in a group of people and then uh, say, okay, this is how everyone should be eating. And I think we have to be very careful with that, uh, particularly in, uh, in in nutrition science, uh, uh, that, uh, yeah, we, we allow for that, that freedom and also respecting cultural traditions and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. It is an interesting question how much variability there is between humans because the flip side of that that line of thinking is we're all homo sapiens and, and um, are we more alike in, in the way that we should construct a diet or could construct a diet for optimal health than we are different? Uh, I always kind of wonder, um, uh, sometimes when people go down that, uh, that avenue, I'm not saying that you're saying this, but they'll, they'll then follow up with a statement like maybe vegan diet is just better for some humans than other humans, than, you know, and, and a meat diet is good for some humans. And I kind of think, I don't think there's that much difference in the way that homo sapiens nutritional biochemistry works. We're all homo sapiens. Um, but that's just my that's just my perspective. So, um, let me ask you one question, then, Paul. There's definitely a lot of people that do appear healthy on vegan diets, whereas other people may run into issues with with their health. I think maybe it might be some certain genetic differences or inter individual differences in nutrient metabolism. I, I, you know, we need more and more data on that. But is it because the people that do feel good on it just designed their diet better? Or uh, is it because they uh, uh, truly cannot thrive on it? And the same, then on the opposite end of the spectrum, is that with meat-based diets, some people seem to do well on it, and maybe you know other other people maybe don't. What is what is your what do you think can maybe explain some of these inter-individual differences? Yeah, so this is a very interesting thing. I'm not sure how you would study this, um, but I would love to see it formally studied. Uh, in the first paper that we talked about today, you actually mentioned a statistic that I thought was fascinating, which is that there are five times more former vegans and vegetarians than there are current vegans and vegetarians, and that, that the majority of these people did the diet for less than 12 months. So, again, I think that this will – I, I want to be as careful as I can about my intrinsic bias, but I, I, I do believe that – um, that a, a homo sapiens organism is not adapted to a plant-based diet in any way, shape, or form. We don't see any historical cultures ever doing that. Certainly plants are much more available than animals and easier to procure. And so if, if you could be uh, a plant-eating human um, and, and thrive on that, I would imagine that we would have at least seen one culture historically that did that, and we've never seen one. And there are examples of, of species of, of hominids, specifically Paranthropus robustus, that went extinct and based on stable isotope analysis, appear to have been uh, mostly plant-focused. So there's a lot of lines of evidence to make me think that. Um, further down the rabbit hole, when, when people say they're thriving on a vegan or vegetarian diet, those are two different things, right? A vegetarian diet has milk and it has eggs. That's a completely different situation. Yeah, than, I agree. Uh, it's an omnivorous diet. It's an omnivorous diet. And I know a lot of people who say they're vegetarians and they eat fish. So let's just contrast you know, a vegan diet and, and an omnivorous or an animal-based diet or a carnivorous diet and create a spectrum there. So when people are vegans, I've just seen it too many times. Perhaps this is my confirmation diet bias, um, but I've seen so many examples of people who, um, you know, may say they're thriving at one year or two year on a vegan diet and 
Pretty predictably, at four to five years, their hormones go in the tank, and they absolutely crater nutritionally. I've interviewed Elise Parker and Tim Sheaf on my podcast and talked to so many vegans who are, who are really badly damaged from, from long-term uh, vegan plant-based diets. And so, to me, I just haven't ever seen it happen. And so, when, when people in the space say, hey, I'm thriving on a vegan diet, I think, I'm glad you're doing well. Um, I, I'm not convinced that you're going to last with that. Um, I don't understand the reasons you're not eating meat. That's a whole, that's why we do what we do, you know, trying to convince people that meat is evolutionarily consistent, uh, both ethically and environmentally sound, so that people can actually lead healthy lives. But then there are very long-term prominent vegans, um, and, and they, they appear to be thriving. And the examples that often get put out there, I just wonder sometimes, um, you know, is, is, this, is this reality? And, and perhaps this is um, not fair to suggest, but I just wonder, like, how... Either they're eating a huge amount of, quote-unquote, processed plant-based food, taking a huge amount of synthetic supplements, neither of which is very evolutionarily consistent, or, or they're, they're seek, sneaking in salmon from Alaska and, and eating it once or twice a month, and that, that's actually allowing them to, to, in their mind, believe they're being more ethically consistent. Uh, I mean, what I hear from vegans all the time is I cannot speak my truth because my community will destroy me, and my entire life is built around this. And again, this is all conjecture. Um, but I've heard this from, I've had physicians email me and say, I've been a vegan for 20 years. My health is destroyed. I've built a career, a community around this. If I come out and talk my truth, I will be literally uh, cannibalized. Um, not, not literally, but you know what I mean? Like in, in the social media space. And so, so they can't do it. And, and they start eating meat and they never tell anyone. And, and, and this is what I fear. So this is, again, I don't think that we'll ever understand this and why we need formal study, but I just don't believe that that's, I don't believe it's tenable. And I think that these examples of um, high-profile vegans that often get thrown around as, as quote-unquote thriving, I think, hmm, uh, they, don't, they don't often look that great to me, and how much better would they be with meat? And I just really hope that they're telling the truth and, and not misleading people because that would, that would be hurting a whole lot of people. Um, the flip side of your question is, what about people who don't thrive on meat-based diets? Um, uh, what I've seen is that generally, um, you know, and again, there is a bias here, uh, people with chronic kidney disease don't do well with more protein. So that type of a person isn't going to do well with, with a heavily meat-based diet. But, and perhaps I don't see a lot of the people who don't thrive on meat-based diets, but um, I, I do. I will admit that when I was doing a fully carnivorous diet, I felt better with the addition of some carbohydrates from an electrolyte perspective, and and I personally found that long-term ketosis was very hard as a human, as my human entity. You know, a year and a half. So maybe there is individual variation on on how people tolerate ketosis. Um, I, Perhaps there are examples, and if people know of examples of people like this, I would love to, to hear their stories and understand maybe where it goes wrong. I certainly admit that there's got to be some degree of bioindividuality, but I don't hear of a whole lot of people uh, not doing well on a paleo diet or an autoimmune paleo diet or an animal-based diet. And I would think of those three, th three things as nodes on a continuum, uh, you know, with like less vegetables, less vegetables, less vegetables. So... Again, uh, I'm sure there are people out there who go animal-based and eat meat and fruit and, and don't do well, and I, I wonder what's going on there. Um, but again, I, I think that there's uh, a whole lot more people who are going to thrive with meat and organs in their diet than not. Is that is that a reasonable answer to your question? I, I think so, yeah. No, I didn't mean to put you on the, on the spot, but I just, it's also a fascinating topic to me, and I always like to get the, hear different perspectives uh, on that because... 
yeah, we we don't have answers to to a lot of those questions yet. So, uh, um, but yeah, sort of my view on this and my interpretation of the literature is that yeah, I think most people tend to fall on some spectrum of omnivory, right, and uh, incorporating various amounts of plant and animal foods. And certainly on that spectrum, we can vary, and you know, we could potentially go without either one for for uh, a, a, a substantial amount of time and, and probably be fine. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly uh, very interesting. And like I said, you have many different people with many different resp uh, responses where I always uh, get a little bit, what I always sort of caution against, or and that is again, sort of my uh, personal opinion, but also obviously, you know, based on, on the literature that I, that I read uh, in that is that, I think we should be careful when people are, uh, you know, you can be healthy on a Mediterranean diet, you can be healthy on a ketogenic diet, you can be healthy on, a, you see people healthy on a Nordic diet, on a vegetarian diet, some people maybe on a vegan diet, some people on a carnivore diet. I think we just have to be careful in extrapolating findings of certain groups to how entire populations should eat, and I think that's uh, that's the main thing. And, and uh yeah, so that that's sort of my takeaway on that. But it was very interesting to see sort of certain responders and non-responders uh, in in response to certain uh, certain diets. And uh, I'm sure we'll find the occasional oddball, and we see that in in different populations, right? Uh, North Northern Europeans, Caucasians, when they consume the standard Western diet, they uh, run into metabolic health issues, but it takes them longer to run into metabolic health issues than when maybe someone like, you know, like the Pima Indians or something like that, which have been studied in that regard, or Samoans, if you put them on a uh, standard American diet, their health, uh, their metabolic health worsens much quicker than, uh, than some of the uh, Western Europeans. So there definitely seems to be uh, in inter-individual differences also in the way we metabolize nutrients, right? And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's just definitely a, a fascinating, uh, fascinating topic uh, to, uh, to, to study in, in the future and uh, why, why some people seem to do well on, on certain diets and other people do not do well on certain diets. Yeah, I think it's an important series of questions for us to be asking. And I think it's also important for us to... Um, I, I've always found it, it important uh, in my work to, to ask questions, right? To, to think outside of the box a little bit, to look at what things we're assuming. And, and I have traditionally felt that the... The assumption has always been that plants are benign and good for us, and we should eat more plants. And so it's been fun and interesting to kind of question that and, and you know, honestly to change my opinion and shift my ideas on that over time. But I think that there is value in asking that question and saying, are all plants always good for people? You know, I think that the majority of people out there, when they have any sort of health issue, if they get any sort of nutritional advice, it will be eat more plants. And I don't think that that's the answer for a lot of people. So what I was saying was that... Um, that I think it's fun and interesting to question the norms, that the mainstream norm has been that uh, plants are beneficial and benign for humans, and that when humans have a health issue, they're often told just to eat more plants, more fiber. And I think for a lot of people, they find massive improvements in their GI issues, and a lot of times even with autoimmune issues when they eat less plants. So there's some kind of uh, beneficial uh, truth there for some people, and that is, uh, that's quite interesting to me, and I think a valuable uh, kind of uh, just a valuable question to be asking in the space. So um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people find more of your work and support you in the future? Uh, so 
good way to follow me would be on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is at uh, VanVleetPhD. So that's my last name. Uh, then also, if you Google my name, uh, you, you'll find my profile on Google Scholar, uh, as well as uh, yeah, my webpage, uh, just, just my name, StefanVanVleet.com. And uh, yeah, I, t- I try to stay active on, on social media. I always uh, enjoy engaging with people. Uh, and just discuss some of the, these things, uh, always in a respectful discussion, but uh, I, uh, I'm always willing to, to engage about that. And, uh, and we'll have more future work coming out, uh, linking, uh, really what we're working on now is like we're linking agricultural production systems to human health. So we're asking basic questions like, do uh, agricultural practices that could potentially improve uh, uh, soil health, uh, animal health, biodiversity, water retention, do these also have a beneficial effect potentially for us as, as humans? Do these make these foods healthier to consume? And then can they also improve our metabolic health? So we're doing a lot of interdisciplinary work uh, with agricultural scientists. And I must say, I really enjoy working uh, working with farmers and, uh, and agricultural scientists in this space. And then uh, also with uh, with extension folks and even uh, uh, economists in this in this area. How uh, uh, we have some grand challenges moving forward, uh, how to nourish a growing population in healthy ways and, uh, and and doing it doing agricultural production practice in a way that we can do it in 200 years still so my interest in that space is the how uh, what is the connection there to uh, to human health and can we potentially do both simultaneously i love it man i i i think i say this to a lot of my guests but especially with you i hope that we get to eat a grass-fed grass-finished regenerative steak someday together i agree paul i uh how, how did you end up in uh how did you end up in Costa Rica? Oh, man, I came down here about six or seven months ago, um, and I uh, I just loved it. The sunsets, the sunrises, the surfing, the ocean, the jungle. It just feels so different than um, the life that I was living before. And so I decided to uh, get a place here and spend part of my year here. And really, I see Costa Rica as, as my own mini time machine. It's my little, uh, it's my little remembering, which is a phrase that I've used. Just, it's a simpler life for me. I still do research. I still podcast from here clearly. Uh, and I still think about how to, how to advance the message and how to share with people uh, ideas that'll be beneficial. But I also think about how to live as a human, uh, in a world or in an environment that's a little bit different than the mainstream or the, the traditional environment that I grew up in. You know, I speak Spanish every day to people. I drive mostly on dirt roads. And like we were talking about before the podcast, sometimes the, the dirt roads are not even passable because the rivers are flooded. And it just creates a whole different uh, way of living. And I think that one of the biggest things for me is just being able to be in the ocean every day and the, um, the, the beautiful chaos of the ocean is just humbling and, and creates a real uh, framework for my, my daily existence. It's a really enjoyable life. Yeah, talking about a pillar of longevity, we, we talked about diets, but the sense of community and purpose is probably uh, almost, or maybe equally important. I don't want to put weight on it, but uh, yeah, you see that with all long-lived populations, right? Yeah, they, they have a healthy, quote-unquote healthy diets, low and ultra-processed foods, usually locally sourced pasture, it's meats and milk, fresh fruits and vegetables. But... They also have a sense of community. So rather than calling it like the Mediterranean diet or a blue zone diet, you probably want the blue zone lifestyle, I guess, is uh, maybe a, a more proper way of, of describing it. Yes, and you see that here. I mean, you see people have community and it's a simple life and 
people are in the sun and you know, they're outdoors. And so there's lots of, lots of reasons that this could be the case. And Nicoya, I'm on the Guanacaste Peninsula. Nicoya is a blue zone. It's right, I'm in, I'm in a blue zone. I live in a blue zone. And uh, I can tell you they eat a lot of meat here. So that's been my one frustration with Dan Butner's uh, sort of uh, proselytizing about blue zones is that they're always sold as a, as a plant-based diet. And I think that's invariably uh, inaccurate unless you're talking about Loma Linda in Southern California. And as we know, there are lots of issues with Loma Linda um, in terms of their, their sperm counts and fertility. So there's lots of reasons things could be going wrong there too. But anyway, so anyway, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. No, yeah, thanks, thanks so for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much.